Kia ora I'm Grace Clare, the manager of um, the University of Otago Food Waste Innovation Theme, um, who is the main host for this session, and I'm thrilled to welcome you um, to this very important panel discussion on tackling food waste together. Uh, so food waste is undeniably a complex and troubling issue. Currently, over 40% of all food produced is lost or wasted between farm and fork. This reinforces that reducing food waste matters. In fact, it really matters. Globally, we lose around one trillion US dollars um, per year on wasted food with significant environmental and social consequences. Approximately 10% of human-caused greenhouse gas emissions come from food waste, which is why reducing food waste is widely considered to be one of our greatest solutions to climate change. To tackle this problem, governments, organisations and companies worldwide are committed to the Sustainable Development Target goal of 12.3, which aims to reduce food waste by 50% by 2030. Exciting food waste reduction initiatives are already underway uh, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with new zero waste projects constantly emerging. Today we are fortunate to have key stakeholders in this space joining us, we have gathered leaders from government, research, industry, and non-profit organizations who will share how they are addressing food waste and how you, the audience, can contribute. It's evident that creating transformative change to our food system requires collaboration among various stakeholders, and that's what this session is all about, tackling food waste together. Um, so before we get started, I would like to take a few moments to acknowledge the people who have made this event possible. Um, we'd like to acknowledge the New Zealand Institute of Food Science and Technology for hosting this event as part of their annual conference in Dunedin this year. And we'd also like to thank the um, New Zealand International Science Festival for putting on this event, as well as many other um, events which have been held in Dunedin over the next few weeks. So we welcome food industry representatives, um, New Zealand Institute Food Science Technology members and members of the general public. Welcome everyone. Now it's time to meet our panellists. So I will invite each of them to introduce themselves, giving them three to five minutes um, to introduce themselves and then I will open the floor up to you for you to ask your questions. So cool, let's begin. So we'll start with Miranda Morosa. Um, yeah, please introduce yourself and explain to us how you are addressing food waste. Over to you. Kia ora koutou, uh, and welcome everybody. So yeah, my name's Miranda. I am currently the head of the Department of Food Science here at the University of Otago, uh, and the director of, a, uh, of the Food Waste Innovations Research Theme. Uh, with another hat on, I also chair the board of New Zealand Food Waste Champions of 12.3, who we're going to hear from uh, later on the panel. Uh, so I am a researcher by, by trade, and research is really important uh, when it comes to, to understanding the issue. And in terms of uh, understanding the issue, it's, it's understand, we, we heard actually in the last, we've just had a session, uh, from uh, a plenary session uh, on food waste, and we heard about the importance of, of understanding, um, the need for more data, and the importance of data and understanding the size of the problem. So we need to understand where food is being wasted, uh, at the impact of the food that's being wasted, why the food is being wasted, what solutions are going to be most effective, or what actions are going to be most effective in, in, in um, solving this 
issue and you know what what policymakers can do and what we can all do to, to help tackle tackle food waste together and if we just think of I mean there's this it's it's a big complex what we call like a wicked problem uh, and so it means there's lots of potential solutions uh, and so I think the role of research is is to look at these to, to design effective you know solutions interventions and and to test these and then provide that advice to to people like government uh, to help inform their decision making and so uh, with our food waste theme we've got over 60 researchers involved uh, coming from a whole range of different uh, disciplinary backgrounds uh, putting their minds together to, to help you know, to help solve this problem. So we've organised ourselves into three groups. We have a group of researchers that are really interested in measuring waste. Um, I'm always keen to sort of get on and, and solve the issue, but, you know, we need to understand understand uh, where best to tackle first. Uh, we have a bunch of our science uh, colleagues who are looking at coming up with te like clever technical solutions or innovations, uh, and, and a bunch of uh, behavioural social scientists looking at, at social innovations as well. Uh, so yeah, really um, exciting, expi exciting space to be in at the moment, and I have a, a fellow researcher sitting beside me who I'm going to pass the mic to now. Kia ora. Uh, Craig Tokungo. Um I joined at Target University about two years ago. I'm the director of the Agricultural Innovation Program, and uh, people will say, oh, I didn't know Otago did ag. How long have you done that? Um, our first graduates came out last year. But it turns out um, Otago actually owns more farmland than all the other universities and CRIs combined. Um, so that's, that's enough boasting there. Uh, it turns out we've always been an ag. And the sorts of things we look at here in our program and in our research programs um, are focused a lot at how ag is changing, but it's always changed as well. So farmers who say they'll never change how they farm aren't acknowledging um, how their parents farmed. And as we change how we farm, we might start to see things that we think are food waste, but it might be a changing farm method to minimise emissions or to reduce the amount of synthetic fertiliser. We might see a, a greater use of uh, green crops, manure crops, ones that are simply grown to protect the soil and then return to the soil nutrients. But when we drive past, if we were to see a tractor ploughing in peas and beans, we might be horrified thinking that's food going to waste, but it's not perhaps food in that scenario. We might see that more and more. We might see uh, fields of cereal or, or what look like cereal being grown as well and fed directly to livestock and in a way that currently might be problematic in terms of strip uh, grazing the, the black muddy paddocks. We might see that change with technologies like halter, the um, collars that can help a, a guide an animal to exactly where it can or can't be on a pasture. And so we might see more on pasture grazing, but in a way we haven't seen it before. And again, it might look like food waste, but it's using nature to provide something more directly to the animal. What we also might see is um, a, a willingness, an increasing willingness and awareness to utilise crops that might be ploughed back to the ground because it's not worth the cost of harvesting them. And the challenge there is, uh, particularly to my food science um, colleagues, is how can we convert a crop that might be in excess, say cabbages, into something that can be used later in, in the food network somewhere. And as we move further into the future and we start to reduce divides between urban and rural farming and acknowledge that maybe there's some things that urban farmers can explain to 
rural farmers what they'd like to know about their food or learn about food production. And there's skills that rural farming can actually help the urban farmer with. We hear a lot about um, urban gardens, urban orchards, uh, seed collection, seed preservation, seed libraries within a city. There's things that the agricultural sector can actually help there in that scenario around plant disease management and such. If we drive around a city at uh, apple season time, we might be horrified to think, oh, there's those, all those apples going to waste. Why can't we harvest them? Well, if 5% of them have got codling moth in there, we probably can't harvest any of them because we can all cut around the codling moth, but if there's codling moth in a whole crate of apples, they all go to waste. So are there things that we do in agriculture that we could actually adapt better into the city? So these are the, the sorts of things that keep us awake at night or give us the um, fun things to get our teeth into when we get into class or into the lab. And uh, that's all from me, thank you. I'll pass on to our next speaker. Kia ora koutou. my name is Juliet and I'm the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor. So with that hat, I have the privilege of advising the Prime Minister, ministers, officials on anything science-y. So my job's to go find the expert researchers, like the people on my right, and connect them to policymakers, decision makers, to try and make good choices. We've done all sorts of different topics, but genuinely the most fun are the ones to do with waste. And I think that's because everyone agrees that solving waste is a good thing to do. So we did a project in 2019 about rethinking plastics, and you might have noticed lots of announcements recently banning this, that, and the other, single-use disposable um, plastic items. And part of the reason that that's happening is because we put the evidence base into government and they've used that to come up with those policy changes. So at the moment, we are doing a big project on food waste. So I've got some props. We've got a whole series of reports that we're popping out and a big website. And that includes some public-facing material. So if you're the sort of person that worries about whether you should throw this in the compost or whether you should get a worm farm, um, go have a look. Just search Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor Food Waste and it should pop up. Um, and it'll tell you well, sort of choices you can make, the sort of logic behind those choices. Um, and some of the science behind it. So you can just go down those rabbit holes or wormholes and, um, and see what's useful and what's not. Um, but the primary thing that we'll do with all that material is put it into another big report. Um, the first one was just capturing the whole wicked problem that Miranda mentioned of food waste and all the different elements of our life it touches on, whether it's feeding hungry people or making soil better or preventing waste in the first place. Um, then we've done another one on food rescue. So this highlights all the work of um, some of the people you'll hear from shortly, um, rescuing food that would otherwise go to waste and feeding it to people. And there'll be two more to watch out for. One on the what to do with food that can't be rescued for human consumption, so the compost and the worm farms and all those sorts of things. And the final one, which will be the most important one, on how we can think about, in New Zealand, reducing the amount of waste at source. And that's a particular challenge for an economy like ours that essentially relies on exporting premium produce. 
um, almost by definition, you're going to get lots of secondary, tertiary um, grade products. And how can you make sure that the policy settings are right so that they go to feed hungry people and don't get wasted and don't create the environmental footprint that we know is associated with lots of wasted food? So I'll leave it there. But if you need more, check out the website. Kia ora. Um, Chris Henderson, I'm the Group Manager of Waste and Environmental Solutions at Dunedin City Council. Um, I guess as far as uh, residential food waste is concerned, I'm representing the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Um, we're <laughs> bringing in food waste collections, etc., to curbside, which has been recently mandated by government. We'll be coming out to all, all, all across New Zealand. Um, but obviously that's for uh, urban properties where the food's already been consumed or over-purchased over or for whatever reason. Um, council has committed to being carbon neutral by 2030. Uh, we currently have about 30,000 tonnes per year of organic waste that goes into landfills um, and at least a third of that is food waste, unnecessary food waste, nine or 10,000 tonnes each year. Um, obviously that has a significant carbon impact. Um, so we're in the process of, we're moving early on uh, food waste collection at curbside, which will be coming in 2024 to the Dunedin area. Um, but once again, basically just reiterating that it's pretty much ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. We'll be collecting food and green waste and turning that into compost, um, which is probably not the best use of that to start with. Um, I'll leave that there. I haven't really got that much to add. Kia ora koutou, ko Nikki Solomon, taku ingoa. Um, I have worked in the food industry for my whole life, more or less, and have a passion for food and for sustainability. Um, I'm currently doing two roles. I work half-time for the New Zealand Food Innovation Network, and for the last two and a half years, I've been working for the collective of five councils in Hawke's Bay. We have five, which makes life interesting. And I've been implementing the Sustainable is Attainable program. Um, it, was, it had its genesis in South Canterbury. So Venture Timaru, which is the Economic Development Agency in South Canterbury, was um, initially working with a bunch of food manufacturers uh, around workforce poaching issues. And um, Nigel Davenport, who's the CE there, said, let's get together and have a few beers and think about some better ways of behaving. Um, and they built some trust over some years. And then one of the businesses in the room said, you know, the next thing I'd like to collaborate on is sustainability because I'm doing some stuff in my business, but I'm not all that sure I'm doing it as well as I could and you guys I'm sure you're all over it so maybe I could learn from you and as Nigel tells it everyone kind of looked at the ceiling and went oh yeah we're great at that um, and agreed everyone agreed that there was benefit in collaborating around sustainability so the idea of sustainable as attainable is not to try to take anything away from what an individual business might do within its own four walls, and there's great stuff happening in so many businesses, but sometimes the opportunities require more than one business working together, and that might be for scale, for additivity, you know, your apple peels and my potato eyes might make some magic. Um, and so it's really a, a, an opportunity, I guess, for businesses to share. And we, um, we were a couple of years behind um, South Canterbury 
they were really, really supportive of us joining. And again, I think that speaks to the importance of collaborating um, across regions. Some of the answers to our problems will require pan-regional solutions. Um, so the, the kind of model for sustainable is attainable is to begin by collecting some data, and we've heard about the paucity of data, and um, I'm an 80-20 person, so I was just like, well, let's just get started and get some data. Um, it's not perfect, but what we got in the first um, summer, we, we rely on, we kind of smell of the oily rag kind of thing, so we rely on student um, projects in the summer to really make progress. And um, so we got enough, we had 20 or 30 businesses um, in the room, and we got enough data to give us a little bit of a snapshot across the region of where the big opportunities were. So, so to, um, sustainable is attainable is not just about food and biological waste, it's also about plastics and, and organics, but obviously the biological side of things is relevant here. And then we kicked off some projects, um, but I think the really big learning um, has been that businesses are really open to collaborating in, um, in a space like this. There was some scepticism that, that that was going to be the case, and, and I guess that's the key take-home for me. Um, initially, I had a six-month contract, and I was like, well, let's just test it out. This might be a really bad idea. Um, and there is definitely um, strong will from business to work together on this, and also to share learnings and challenges and um, understanding. So, yeah, it's probably enough from me. Kia ora, I'm Hamish Conway, I'm Head of R&D at Goodman Fielder. You probably don't know the name, but you will know our brands. We make a whole lot of different breads, from Vogel, Smolenberg, Freyers, Nature's Fresh. And we also make a lot of dairy products, so Meadow Fresh and Puhoi Valley are our big products. So we operate 10 factories across the country, making a wide range, and we've always been focused on food waste because it's not good economically to waste. But what we've learnt recently, because we signed up to Kai Commitment, which I won't steal all of Caitlin's thunder, but it has really been helpful to us because we've had to start really understanding what our waste profile is. And because we run different businesses, it's not the same problem because they're different from a dairy factory from a bread factory. Bread factory, most of the waste is happening when it comes off the shelf because we all like fresh bread and it only has six days from when we make it to when it has, runs out of shelf life, the best before date, which is very, very short to get it made onto shelf, and then it's got to come off before the end, and that's a huge waste that we all have to tackle together because we can't do it all ourselves. On the dairy side, most of the waste happens with the milk coming in that doesn't get into a finished product, and that's because it gets in pipes and you've got to clean the pipes, and so we've got to do a whole lot of work there. But the big learning, because we've just done our first baseline, is we are missing good information internally, let alone externally, as to where the true waste is and what the cause of that waste is. But it has been eye-opening and staggering how much food, as in, because we don't own farms, we bring in raw materials, be that flour or milk, and we turn them into food products, and it's staggering how much, unfortunately, is not making it into consumers' mouths at the end of the day. Tēnā katoa katoa, ko Caitlin Dawson tōku I am lucky enough to lead an organisation called New Zealand Food Waste Champions 
12.3 charitable trust. It is a mouthful. Grace has already explained what 12.3 is, which is the sustainable development goal that we are aligned with to have food waste by 2030. And many global organisations are uh, aligned with that goal. So we uh, started in March 2020 as a group of really passionate leaders from across the food system who volunteer their time saying this is important, this needs to get on the agenda and we need to act now. So I'm lucky enough to lead that and learn off that group of leaders of which about half or over of this panel are part of that group and we have 14 leaders at the moment uh, that represent very different aspects of the supply chain or of the food system rather, or of the food value chain. Um, so that's the organisation and we have different projects that we, uh, that we do or that we collaborate on and our whole mission is to reduce food waste in Aotearoa and to really be thought leaders and bring evidence solutions to the forefront in order to achieve real impact uh, across the food sector. And that's really important because just over the past couple of years, the food waste sector, we are now a sector, was really born out of a need for change, the change you're hearing about. And when we mapped it recently, we found that there's over 120 organisations working on reducing or recycling or upcycling or diverting food waste. And that doesn't actually count all of the wonderful food rescue organisations that are rescuing and, and distributing food. So there are a lot of organisations and projects doing the mahi to shift the dial on food waste. And it's really important that we have a common thread and that we're working together to solve that goal. Uh, our flagship program is called Kai Commitment, which Hamish has just so wonderfully mentioned. I'll pay you later. No, uh, it's really impactful, as you've just heard. It's a program that we launched in November 2022, so we're really fresh, and it's essentially a voluntary agreement. So leading food businesses, all food businesses, sign up. They commit. They sign an agreement to commit to reducing their food waste. They set ambitious but achievable targets. Uh, we meet them where they are, so every business is on a different journey, and that's really important. We're not pushing businesses to commit to zero food waste by 2030, but we push them to be ambitious. And we do that by first hand-holding them through a measurement process, which Goodman Fielder have just gone through, and that's using an international food loss and waste protocol, so basically a really gnarly spreadsheet that helps them identify where and how and what they're wasting. Uh, and it's important that we speak the same language as other countries do on food waste and as, say, our baseline measurement might do here in New Zealand so that when we are talking about food waste, when we're talking about the 40% wasted globally, we're talking about the same thing and we're working on the same challenge. And it's also important for some of our signatories who are exporters, like Silver Fern Farms, they're... Um, their, their customers, are, like Tesco's, are demanding transparency on food waste and that is going to start happening more and more as we're seeing overseas mandatory reporting uh, becoming uh, coming into legislation. I think Austria was the latest country to do it just last week. So we're seeing these global trends and CHI commitment as a voluntary agreement is um, a really key step in, in supporting businesses but also New Zealand to reduce our food waste because the businesses that sign up are not only looking at reducing their own food waste, they sign up to collaborate with each other, which in turn influences food waste across the supply chain. Uh, as we currently have 
seven of New Zealand's largest food businesses, so Countdown Foodstuffs, Silverfern Farms, Nestle, Fonterra, Goodmanfielder, and A.S. Wilcox. And any other businesses that are around, please come see me. But this is important because, as I'm sure we all know and we're going to hear today, food waste happens in every sector, in every part of the food value chain. But more importantly, decisions that happen in one area influence food waste that happens in another. So it's so important that we know that it's not one area's responsibility and that we need to collaborate. That's why this conversation, I believe, is probably the most important one we can have around food waste, is because we need different opinions and perspectives around the table in order to solve this problem. And we can see that it's a depoliticized problem. It's something that's easy. We all agree, I mean, that's not easy, but it's easy to agree on that we don't want to waste food. So having very different perspectives around the table, having the growers where decisions down the downstream influence the food that is left on their farms or that they send to animal feed that could be eaten by other humans due to exporting premium products like Juliet's mentioned. It's important that we all have a seat at the table so we can find solutions that make sense for all. Uh, and that's what we are aiming to do with both Kai Commitment but in New Zealand Food Waste Champions across the system. You're a hard act to follow. <laughs> uh, kia ora koutou, my name is Deborah Manning and I'm from Kiwi Harvest. Um, originally started here in Dunedin, but now with branches all over the country, Kiwi Harvest is a food rescue, recovery and redistribution business. We collect food that's good enough to eat, but not to sell, that might be surplus, overproduced, and we keep it out of landfill, we keep it away from composting, we keep it away from animal feed, and we feed it to people. Feeding people is the second most important thing to do with food waste after preventing it in the first place. So we believe we have a very important role to play in creating a strong community. The benefits of food rescue is not only environmental, stopping that food from going to landfill where it decomposes, producing harmful greenhouse gas emissions, but also we have a social aspect of what we do. We feed people. We feed food insecure people and we do that by providing that food to on the ground at the coalface organisations in communities who are providing food support. That might be food parcels, it might be community meals, it might be cooking classes. We don't actually call the food waste because it's not waste to us, it's a meal for someone. So we avoid that word. Um, it might be waste technically in a business. Um, but for us, it is actually a way to nourish our community and to build strength in our community. There are food rescues all over New Zealand, in towns, in cities, and they're all working really hard. We are, most of us are not-for-profit organisations, which means we have to find our own funding. During the COVID two years, we were considered an essential service um, uh, and and received support from the government. That, that support has been slashed. So we are facing a little bit of a crisis ourselves in our business model. Um, eventually, all food rescues want to do themselves out of a job. We don't want there to be food waste. We want to be put out of a job. And we don't want food insecurity either. We want to be put out of a job for that. But until that happens, we still have an important role to play as part of this whole team to approach the... Um, the problem of food waste, food surplus, and food insecurity in our communities. 
Great, thank you so much. Thank you to our panelists for those great introductions. So moving on from that, we will now open the floor up to you, the audience, um, to ask what you'd like. You can ask general questions, you can ask the specific panelist um, a question. And Erin over here, just raise your hand and she'll run the mic over and just make sure you wait till you get the mic before you start speaking for recording purposes. Great, I've got a question for probably Hamish and maybe Deborah, uh, but uh, others can have a crack at it too. Um, question is, should we get rid of best before dates? Yeah, that is actually a really hard one to answer. In the UK, they've got rid of it on milk. Um, but to be honest, I employ the sniff test on dairy products, which is, if it looks okay, smells okay, John Brooks is looking at me with daggers, but generally it's okay. But to be honest, if we, we talked about as well, there are so many factors as people's fridges at home, it's education about what is good and what is not good. A cheese that has gone past its best before date is like a cheddar, goes from mild cheddar to tasty cheddar. So there is some uh, definitely anomalies in how we educate and uh, consumers, but there is a problem. Traceability, so we actually trace all our products by best before date, so you have to have some way to trace when they were made in case there's any issues, but uh, we will end up having this debate more and more because it is a guide, and unfortunately we can only do our best for what we can control, but a lot of what happens to food products is outside of our control by the time it goes into a supermarket, into a um, consumer's car, maybe for a bottle of milk, could be up to five hours in the long travel in summer, and that will influence. Milk loses half its shelf life for, um, if it's above 20, 10 degrees, or lose half of its 14-day shelf life, basically in one day. So we, short answer is, I would encourage everyone to use caution, but um, use it as a guide, best before date, not as an absolute. I would uh, agree. Uh, and I, but I also think there is a bigger question here, and that question is about education. And then the big question about education is, you can't, I don't think you should just come in and say we have to educate people who are doing the shopping and the cooking. I think we have to start at the very beginning of children's lives and get them involved in food, get them understanding food, um, bring back uh, cooking and growing and, and even soil integrity to, to, into schools so that the, the children actually understand the value of food that we have. And by understanding that and appreciating that, then that education flows into making um, purchasing choices and cooking choices and food integrity choices too. Thank you, Deb. Um, this is a general question, but just I want to thank you all for taking the time to um, participate in this. It's brilliant having such a range of experience and skill. Um, I'm curious, if you were faced with someone saying, oh, I don't understand what the importance of waste is, what fact or concept or perhaps example of best practice would you lead in with to convince them otherwise? Who would like to pick that one up? Maybe someone different this time? 
<laughs> one of the great things about food waste is there's so many ways we can frame it as an issue and sort of pitch that to people. So it depends on who we are speaking to. If I was speaking to someone with strong environmental concerns, I would say to them, uh, the estimate is that 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to food, which is, is which is wasted, which is a phenomenal when we know we're you know, facing a, a climate crisis. So there's a really sort of good climate reason for reducing food waste. Uh, we've heard, you know, the strong sort of social reasons for reducing food waste when, you know, so it hit them with a stat around the number of, of hungry people um, or people facing food insecurity globally, nationally here at home and, and say that's this madness, we're wasting so much food when we have people that desperately need it. Uh, when we're talking to businesses often, we talk about the sort of hard economic uh, dollar that can be saved uh, through through reducing food waste within their organisation. So I think that's one of the really neat things, and, and someone said this before, is, is nobody's against wasting food, and we can sort of pitch the issue, you know, depending on the audience. Anyone else? Um, so just building on that, so... Sorry, Juliet um, talked about our food waste iceberg, and so underneath the tip of that iceberg, there's all these issues that food waste um, is creating. How can we bring those forward to the general public and educate them on the severity of this issue? I guess it's finding out what people are concerned about and giving them some agency and saying, well, you know what, if you made an effort to reduce food waste and to persuade your family and your friends to reduce food waste, you could start to tackle some of those. So for those that went in the talk, the sort of things under the waterline for the iceberg problem were um, fresh water quality, which a lot of people are passionate about. Um, water usage, which in some parts of the country at some times of year are um, really critical, cost of living. There's all those kind of big picture entry issues and Miranda's just talked eloquently about emissions um, where people are really frustrated and anxious and want to be able to make a difference but don't know how and food waste gives you one avenue to start thinking about that and living more sustainably. Thanks, Julia. Question? Yeah, what, what can we learn from other countries that have done a good job when it comes to all of this? I'll start, but I certainly don't have all the answers. I think um, in terms of... I think businesses have led the way in, in many instances through... We've done a lot of research before we launched Kai Commitment and we based it off international best practice and there's voluntary agreements like Kai Commitment in at least 10 other countries. Um, and I mentioned Tesco's earlier. They joined Courtauld Commitment in the UK about 10 years ago and have been publicly reporting their food waste voluntarily for 10 years, which is extremely progressive. Uh, putting your numbers out there for everyone to scrutinise uh, is not something that businesses do voluntarily generally. And that has now influenced the UK government to put out a public consultation on should food waste be mandatory, food waste reporting be mandatory, and coupled with legislating uh, mandatory food waste targets. Uh, so that is a really great example that businesses can influence change. Uh, and they pulled their suppliers along the journey. So Coca-Cola and Nestle, and Nestle have just put out that they're going to be asking their 
uh, suppliers to start reporting on their food waste. So it has the cascade effect. So that's some of the, um, I think, inspiration that I take. And I also think that we're not going to take 10 years to do that because Juliet talked earlier about the pace of change, or maybe that was someone else. The pace of change that is happening now is a lot faster than what was happening 10 years ago. So I think people are seeing the writing on the wall and with... Um, legislation coming with talks of mandatory reporting, it makes sense for businesses to get ahead of the game and, and start uh, understanding their food waste and doing the best that they can on their own terms until before it's publicly uh, written out there. So I think that's something that's really exciting to look at. I think we can also take some really great learnings of what not to do, and there are some um, great examples that I've seen in I think it was Denmark many years ago, they went to waste to energy really quickly and while that can be a solution for some things, they started needing to input their, import their waste because their waste to energy plants got really hungry. And so while we are, I believe, probably always going to have a small amount of avoidable, of unavoidable food waste or of organics that we couldn't reduce or prevent or feed to people or upcycle. So we need solutions like composting and anaerobic digestion and vermicomposting. It's really important that we keep the hierarchy in mind and not invest too heavily in those solutions so we then have really hungry um, plants that require that food. So I think that um, is a really another great thing to learn. There's so many other consumer behaviour campaigns and supporting hospitality businesses has been done quite well overseas. There's a campaign called Guardians of Grub in the UK um, and Australia has done something similar there. So I think hand-holding to a degree is really necessary, not just creating some tools or some how-to guides or some resources and letting it sit on a website. We know that we are all time poor. And back to the other question of how do you convince someone to reduce food waste, we only have a really small capacity to truly care about a few things. And if food waste isn't your thing, then I can't blame you. You know, you might be really focused on your cost of living, but then that's what I would talk about when coming to food waste, for example. Uh, and similarly with business, they are there to be in business and to service their customers and particularly with hospitality and businesses with small margins. Uh, I think there has to be a certain amount of hand-holding and therefore government support or other funding to uh, really walk along the journey before it becomes business as usual and everyone is of an understanding that it just makes sense to reduce food waste. That's all I've got for that. From a manufacturer, it's data. And we thought we are doing pretty good, but we've, A, had to do, we signed up, not had to do, we signed up, and now going through the baseline, and we've got massive gaps in our data, but what we do have is worse than what we thought it was going to be. So having someone like the Kai Commitment to template and someone to hold a hand, but it's all about data, and I guarantee if you don't do it at home, and for a week you scraped all of your food that you're throwing away into a bin, you would be gobsmacked by how much you're throwing away because it's small amounts that turn into big amounts, but most of us are oblivious to it. So for me, it's all about the data. Then you can have different stories for different groups for different reasons and different motivations as well. Thank you. Any another question? Thanks for that answer. Um, I agree. I think we need a lot more data across the whole food system. I'm really interested to hear your opinion, Craig, on 
what the value proposition is for reducing food loss and waste on farms. So you talked a bit about how farmers grow cereals to plough into the field for better soil properties. As a researcher or as someone trying to pinpoint solutions early in the food supply chain, what would you suggest the approach should be to get that sort of buy-in from those people in that part of the food system? Thank you. Um, if we look at it on a case-by-case -case basis, some are far more complicated and have barriers in place you wouldn't expect. So we have an emerging hemp industry in New Zealand that got started up not that long ago, um, with hemp being allowed to be grown for human food and fibre. And so we have a, a, quite a, a good hemp oil industry in New Zealand. Um, we have a reasonable amount of production of hemp hearts, but we still have waste streams from that that we, we can't use, say, for livestock feed. And while there is some um, intent to maybe take what's called hemp cake after we've squeezed, squeezed the oil out and convert that to a, a high-protein powder, there just isn't the demand for that. So there's a challenge there for food science to find new uses for that into new foods, other foods. Because the hemp cake at the moment um, has to be buried. It can't be fed to livestock. It's still illegal to use it for that. So there's, there's a policy barrier there to, to that. Um, there's not a problem with ploughing what looks like food into the soil, particularly if it's trying to minimise other inputs, um, such as fertiliser. And so those crops don't tend to be ones that we would associate with food. But they might in the future, particularly with climate change and the types of crops we can grow. So we, we might be far more restricted in what we can grow um, within a region. And so what one season might be grown as a commercial crop, the next season is used to go back into the land. So that will have challenges there as we get a head, head around how we change uh, and due to climate change, our use of the land. Other things might be, um, a lot of my colleagues in agriculture are horrified when I say this, we should destock a little bit, <coughs> not necessarily completely. Um, ruminants will always play a role in an agricultural landscape, particularly one that's based on Eurasian plant species. They have evolved with ruminants, eating them, chomping them into the ground, um, and, and building the soil up that way. So at the very least, if we um, went vegetarian, we would still have livestock there somewhere. Um, what do we do with that livestock that might be just performing an environmental service to the farm? That raises questions as well. Um, the meat industry has one of the lowest waste outputs that they use every bit for you know, ultimately pet food. The challenge is those low nutrient dense crops, how can we make them more valuable? Often it's just getting the water out, but what we're left with is probably a pretty good vegetable stock. But again, finding a use for that, that's going to be a challenge as well. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Uh, hi, my question is to anyone, but um, we've heard a bit about how the best before dates are kind of not really an indicator of whether food is safe to eat or not. So is there any good reason why we couldn't reduce food waste and educate people by just uh, replacing them with something that says something like, uh, I'm safe to eat me unless there's mold on us, or something like that, that basically just tells consumers 
you know, trust your own senses, your own sense of smell, and this specific food, it will be safe to eat until this point. Like, why, any, is there any good reason why we can't just do that? It is a great idea, and there is some good reason, unfortunately, which is there's a risk, and it's always the slight risk that is of serious food safety, which is illness, and at worst, death. So different things, like take a loaf of bread, is quite different from a bottle of milk. Loaf of bread will grow mould, which you'll see, but you may not always see the mould, and that mould can have some toxins that will produce that will make you sick. So as many food manufacturers, we've definitely got more aware, but also more concerned about the damage that can come because of it. And we get a whole lot of complaints from people who will blame well, the product that we have sold. Bread still, people will say that has made the milk. Now, unlikely, in all honesty, bottle of milk, because it's unpasteurised but still neutral pH, great medium to grow things, can and will cause people to get uh, to be ill, depending on what they do with it as well. So it's a risk profile. There are some things that are definitely less risky, like cans of food, will last a long time. But again, there is what you do with it. If you damage a can, there is a risk that it still can become uh, cause illness. So it's trying to balance the safety of the population versus the food waste. And it's not an easy, simple equation either. I was just going to thank you for your question because I've been asking the same one um, as, as part of our project and I think that certainly my daughter doesn't know the difference between the best before date and the use by date and so there's a lot of work to do to, to really do that. So um, what we don't want to do is start to get people sniffing their raw chicken or the tahini to see if it's okay. So th there's a risk there that, that, that we rely on people knowing more than perhaps they do. Um, and I think the ray of hope might be in labelling. So one of the big problems has always been uh, there's not enough room on the label to say, you can probably eat this, but if it was spent too long in the car, then maybe don't. And, um, yep, cut off that green bit and discard three more slices. That's, you know, people don't want to put that on their label. But now, now we've got QR code technology. I think there's some hope that we can start to put some good, sensible advice, and we can start then to nuance your packet of biscuits versus your your bottle of hummus. So I think there's some room to move. Thanks. And I think we're probably talking to an educated audience, um, but just to clarify, in case any of you are unclear of the difference between the two lates, dates that we're talking about, a best before date is a quality indicator, uh, and the use by date is, is the food safety indicator. So do not eat, none of us are advocating for the removal of use by dates. Use by dates are important and you should not eat food after a use by date has expired. Uh, whereas the, the best before date is just an indicator of when that product is, is, is at its peak quality. So it, it may be safe or it is safe to eat after that use by date. And when Hamish was talking about using the sniff test, he's, he's talking about uh, that, that best before date. Um, but you can see there is some there is uh, confusion. It's, we, we don't have good data here, but uh, in the UK and the US, the estimate is about 25% of the food waste uh, that occurs in the household is as a result of mis misunderstanding uh, around the date labels that are used. And so that's why some of us are calling 
calling for a review of the date labelling system that we have uh, here in New Zealand. And we are seeing uh, manufacturers voluntarily putting more information on pack around how to uh, informing uh, people how to store the food once they get it home. Because again, we know storage, a lot of people are storing food incorrectly, which is shortening its shelf life and, and leading to waste. So we are seeing more instructions being put on pack on where to store food as well as how to how to cook it and so forth. But there is the challenge of the small label <laughs> and how much you can get on pack. Sorry for a little lecture there. <laughs> on the topic, I... Um yeah, I often employ the sniff test and I probably ate some yogurt the other day that was on slightly the tangy side, but nothing seemed to happen, so sometimes it's a bit of trial and error. Cool. Um, I have a question probably for you, Kate, then. Um, you talked about how industry are signing up to agreements with you. What's the consequences if they don't meet those commitments within that agreement? The fine print. No, it's a voluntary agreement. They choose to join. They choose to sign. We ask them to sign for three years, so they have committed to um, the commitments for three years, and that is because you only start to understand something of this nature probably at about the eight-month mark, and you, then you start to get excited, and then you start to actually see action. Uh, and the consequences is not public shaming. Um, it's, it's really to create a movement of making this become business as usual. So we really have just started and we have seven of the leading businesses. So our ambitions are to go far and wide and really just create a community of best practice. And part of that commitment is collaboration. It's written in there. They've all signed up to do that. And, and that's a big reason why they all did it because as we've heard from Hamish, they were all doing things on their food waste and actually thought they had heaps of data and thought they knew what they were doing. And Many are um, quite away on their journey, but they all have identified that they can do more together. And like we all know, it, it they have to understand each other and where um, waste happens at different points of the supply chain and how they can work together. And, and that is a big motivator for them. So, um, I mean, it's a great question. I should probably think about that in case it happens. <laughs> but it's voluntary right now. And the way the world is going is that these things will become mandatory. And um, so we're just getting everyone, I think, ready for that behaviour to just be commonplace. Thank you. Another question? Hi, thank you. So interesting. Um, there's a lot of talk about solutions and there seems to be a whole collection of solutions to the issue of food waste. But if you could sort of choose, like, is there one big ticket item um, that you could sort of, to use Phil Bremer's example earlier, if you could magic wand something, what would it be? Um, the sort of the solution of education comes up frequently, but um, we know that that takes quite a while to filter through and to actually see results and behaviour changes. So um, in terms of fast tracking everything, what is something that could happen in like a short time frame that would make a big impact? 
I have kind of a cop-out answer, which is we would like just a little bit of money to be able to do a return on investment of all food waste solutions. Uh, so we could answer that question with evidence. Um, because you're right, at every, like Caitlin said, every level there are solutions. There's, you know, food's wasted everywhere, which means there's solutions right along that supply chain. Um, and it would be really good to be able to say with confidence um, in terms of best bang for buck, in terms of whether that be the value or the, the quantity of you know, food uh, reduced, food waste reduced as a result of that particular initiative. Um, you know, this is the prioritisation. Um, so that would be my, my wish. It's not really a solution in and of itself, but would help us organise the solutions. Um, I do think one... Again, it's not really a solution, but one thing I'm very keen for is a national sort of strategy action plan on waste, and it's something that, that New Zealand Food Waste Champions are, are working on at the moment. So again, that is something that we sort of collectively as a country have a, a direction of, of travel on this issue. But again, not really a solution. Does anyone have any clever solutions? I mean, that's a really hard question. <laughs> I, I'll... I'll come at you with one, but I think I have to totoko Miranda's because you can have a favourite solution maybe in each sector and for each um, for each sector, but there has to be the cross-system, cross-government industry community buy-in and understanding and common language in order for anything to really be adopted. Um, which is why probably it comes back to that education piece a lot and I think why a national food plan or strategy or framework or whoever wants to call it what or a vision of food waste-free Aotearoa is really important as long as all of the stakeholders are around the table and uh, there is some momentum happening around that at the moment. So that would be the main one, I think, is, is having everyone around the table to buy in and then all the actions, any actions, one action would have much more impact. Oh, to choose one, actually, <laughs> that's really hard. I think we, we as consumers, as eaters, waste the most across um, in, in each sector, so that's probably why it also always comes back to education, but I think, again, this kind of collaborative education, I don't know if anyone saw, I think it was Heller's, like the mayonnaise ad at the... Um, Super Bowl and it was a food waste ad and which was amazing to see you would not have seen that a few years ago but really getting in front of customers and brands taking ownership but potentially collaborating which we can do here in New Zealand or say with some Kai commitment businesses and then getting a program like Love Food Hate Waste on board so we're having the same messages and then maybe we see the same messages in Juliet's team's reports and then maybe our councils are talking about the same messages and the food rescue organisations have the same messages so again it's that why we're having this conversation it's that alignment across all of the solutions. I would like to see local and central government make it a priority. Um, I don't know whether you want to make some comments. Anybody else wants to make some comments about that? I think that, that you know it's got to be led by local and central governments, and then bringing everybody else on board. It can't can't just pass it off. Well, let's just let the businesses and the charities sort that out. Um, I guess I could make a comment on that. I mean, I guess I'll just go back to the point about education, actually, because I think that's. A lot of the evidence from overseas, uh, one of the things that 
bringing in with food waste collections is kitchen caddies so that people can actually, in their own kitchen, when you're putting your food waste into a bin, it's actually a separate bin. You can see exactly how much you're wasting. That then actually has a dollar value and that then actually makes people want to try and address it. I know it's a really silly, simple point, but I just think actually making it real to people in their own kitchens goes a long way to actually, uh, that's probably as close as I get to a magic wand from our point of view. Would you like to add to that, Julia? Or you okay. It's so it's really complex, partly because it falls between central and local government, and some coordination between those two is always challenging on any topic. But one thing that you could think about at the central government level is a lead by example policy. So if it was embedded into all government policies, and and there's sort of um, dull bureaucratic but quite successful mechanisms you can use for that. So, for example, any cabinet decision could have to um, answer a question, what does this mean for waste? Is this reducing waste? Is this increasing waste? So there's a whole pile of, of bureaucratic tools around active prompts, which could probably be better used in central, I don't know how it works at local government, but um, across the two, that, that might start to create a culture where people actively question when each decision's made, does it make the problem better or worse? Am I allowed to ask a question? Of course. <laughs> Juliet, just on that. Um, something internationally that's happened is that there has been mandatory reporting of sort of all government agencies' waste. Is that something that would be palatable here any time in the future? I, I think we should recommend it and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have a question from the audience? Hi, so I've kind of got a two-parter here. So my first question is kind of like, how do you deal with the juxtaposition of packaging versus food waste? Because we see everywhere that everybody's demonising plastics and it seems to be top of everybody's mind, whereas food waste kind of gets put to the side. But as you guys probably well know, plastic packaging is what keeps our food longer and keeps it from going in the bin faster. But it's been a debate sort of around where I'm working about sort of how can we implement both at the same time? The technology just isn't there to have plastic-free anything. Um, and sort of how do you do that? I think I'm going to get that one. It's tricky to balance both, and they've got slightly different angles to tackle them with. Because you're right, the world we are in, it's wishful thinking to you think you're going to buy your loaf of bread unwrapped from a bakery because it, it doesn't work that way unless you want to pay a lot more for it. So... And then um, it'll stale a lot faster. So, again, bread will go past its useful life as a food because it's got mould or because it's gone stale, which is that sort of like toast without toasting it. So there's two ways. And one, we have, we've still got to tackle as a manufacturer our responsibility to do um, packaging and recyclable packaging. So we're always going to have to tackle that. Soft plastics is difficult if you're talking specifically bread because they are, you can recycle it, but it relies on individuals and households taking it back to supermarkets or to the collection points to recycle. So in some ways they're kind of the same because they all need consumer education as well because things like glass isn't necessarily better unless it's a reuse system, not a recycle system. So they're tied together, but you do have to balance, and we have to balance off the uh, ability to get a longer shelf life through using more packaging, 
we make gluten-free bread that has 15-day shelf life because it's in a thicker pack with modified atmosphere. But that's because we don't sell as much, it's got further distance to travel, so it makes sense to do it there. Whereas fresh bread, because we make it across the country, we use packaging and we try and, we call it downgauge, lightweight, so use as little packaging as possible because that's still the right thing to do. But we, you do have to balance what is the right thing for the shelf life. And it, it's a balance. But we, we do have to do both and there is... Uh, a need to make sure we do both in terms of food waste and packaging, but I'd agree packaging's had a much bigger spotlight and probably more emotion from consumers than food waste. And I don't think it's education. Personally, I think it's they don't see the impact and don't see the financial to their, to their wallet. It's a great question. Mm, making food waste visible. Um, so I have a question. So one of the main topics of this conversation is innovation. Um, so how do you see the application of innovation working in this space to address food waste? And are there any examples that you can give of successful innovations helping to tackle food waste? One speaks very much to the, the packaging issue, um, plastic wrapped lettuce. Um, extends the shelf life and quality um, astronomically, but then people look at the, the packaging there and see plastic. If we move to biodegradable plastics, there is a cost, um, but they are now at the, the um, level of technology that you wouldn't know if you're dealing with a biodegradable plastic or not. And they might bring in a little bit of a, an increase in cost there to, to deal with that. The other innovations are around um, traceability and particularly some of the technologies that don't rely on just a labelling sticker, but the ones that can go to a lab, be analysed, and actually confirm this has come from this farm with this production method um, and, and is validated back to the, to the source and the origin. And that will help minimise um, food counterfeiting, which can also then contribute to um, other waste in the system, particularly if it's being produced in a less sustainable way. Yeah, so many cool innovations, depending again where on the supply chain we look at. Um, a couple of colleagues of mine, uh, Graham Ayers, Pat Silcock and Phil Brimmer, who many of you will be familiar with, have uh, just been funded through some MB funding to look at capturing natural high-value um, flavour compounds from dairy processing waste streams uh, using using innovation, which is really exciting. Um, but I think another another thing that we're working on in the department is upcycling food and sort of product innovation using creating new products from would have been otherwise wasted, wasted foods. So sort of bringing those things that we might not typically eat, so skins or peels or pulps, or uh, and bringing those back into the into the supply chain and creating uh, new sort of value-add uh, products with with those streams. Um, I'm always keen when we're talking about innovation, um, not just to focus on the, the shiny technological stuff, but also think about, I think, with this particular issue, social innovation and those behaviour changes are absolutely critical as well. So make sure we push our thinking of it on innovation into that space as well. What do you think, Nikki? Um, yeah, I just... Um echo Miranda's thoughts really about the opportunities to take things that might have been wasted or used for a low value purpose like stock food and yeah, upcycling or extracting value and there's great um, 
success stories, um, really good funding sources for companies that want to invest in those and collaborative projects with um, multiple crime research agencies and universities. So I think there's really cool stuff happening in the innovation space there. I guess the complexity is this um, huge system and joining up the innovation at all those pieces, um, which is probably another innovation in itself and sort of the systems thinking part of it. But um, yeah, I, th I, think, I think there's a very healthy innovation activity in the space, um, but there's always room for more and better and more connectivity. Um, I think that I've observed, you know, it's a, it's probably a tyranny of our funding system that we can have in a small country, we can have multiple organisations kind of working on similar things without necessarily talking to each other. And I think there's a real opportunity to, um, to imp improve that. And I guess that's where conferences and, and conventions like this are really valuable as well. Um, yeah. Do we have any more questions? Yeah, hi. Um, first of all, thank you for uh, explaining the difference between use by and best before dates. Uh, I was wondering what that was myself. Um, but my question's actually about supermarkets. So where are they in all of this? You know, uh, one would think the more I waste, the more I buy from supermarkets, and that's in their interests. So... Well, Miranda can talk to data, I'm sure, but... I guess I'll just touch on, um, we actually see the least, well, when I say we, the, the data I currently refer to is our friends in Australia, as we don't yet have food waste data here in New Zealand, but we're going to have it soon. Uh, and I think it's around only 3% of food waste comes from retail in Australia, where we've got around 30% from consumers and 20%-ish on farms, so it's a really small amount. However, they are the hub of our food um, and the hub of our food waste and influence food waste upstream and downstream. So setting specifications, for example, can influence food waste upstream and how they talk to consumers can influence food waste downstream. So extremely important. And uh, the two major supermarkets here in New Zealand have acknowledged this, so they're both a part of Kai Commitment and they've set some pretty lofty targets. We heard from Foodstuffs uh, earlier today from Sandy uh, on their um, food waste reduction targets and they have a huge focus on, on feeding people and, and reducing that food insecurity piece um, and really are looking at that collaboration piece up and down the supply chain. I obviously can't speak for them, but they are, they've acknowledged that it's a problem. And I think, again, globally, we are seeing supermarkets like Tesco's 80% of... They've gotten 80% of food waste out of landfill and have fed it to people, so through food rescue organisations. So I think um, while maybe when we're looking at data, it's not the largest amount there's a lot of influence there. And I think when we're speaking about talking to consumers and if we do update packaging, for example, that messaging has to be communicated at the shelves. So they need to be on board. I'm not sure if anyone else. Uh, yeah, so we work with all the supermarkets in, in the cities and where we have our branches and all food rescues do as well. They're very committed to uh, 
to putting food back into the community food, through, food, food rescue. They don't just give us food either, they also provide financial support to and build the capacity of food rescues that rescue from them. So, yeah, I've got huge admiration for them. Hi. Um, we all know children are our future. Um, they're our future consumers, uh, the guardians of our planets, uh, future scientists, um, growers, engineers. Can I ask each one of you to give us something to the children in the audience? There's a few here under the age of 12, but also, and some leaving, <laughs> uh, but also a message that we can take home to our own children and our, and our own grandchildren. Can I ask each one of you to, to give us a one-liner of something we can take away today for our children? Awesome question. Um, and it sort of loops back to something Deborah said right at the start, which is actually get them involved with food. Um, so we've got some research that has shown that, that kids that are involved in home gardening, that, that really appreciate essentially the value of food and are therefore more likely um, not, not to waste it. So uh, uh, we were looking at this particularly in relation to uh, willingness of the kids' willingness to eat ugly fruits and vegetables. And the kids that had been involved in the, the growing and the, the food sort of preparation of that food were much more willing to eat a, you know, an ugly blemished fruit, for example. Um, so reconnecting people, kids, with food. Oops. Thinking of uh, slightly older children, young, young people, teenagers, um, studying sustainability and the environment will lead to an amazing job and an amazing career. Those skills are needed um, and, and appreciated. And if I think of the cohort of students that have um, most recently come out of the programs I'm associated with, it's understanding sustainability, the environment, society, where that fits, and even the most um, science-focused student can still benefit from, from understanding the, the critical issues and thinking about these sorts of things critically. Thanks for that question. I was actually thinking about this the other day because I have vivid memories as a child myself. If I left some food, my mother would say, don't waste it, children are starving in Africa. And I used to say, so, yeah, what, how can I possibly solve that problem by eating the rest of those Brussels sprouts, um, which is a good question. And so I was thinking, what would I tell my former self or what would I tell my kids or my grandkids? Um, and I think it's about respecting the food and saying, because somebody planted that and nurtured that and grew that and cooked that, um, and just really understanding the value of it at every level, and then an understanding of if you waste it, it's going to make emissions that warm the planet. So it's respecting the food and respecting the environment. Um, although I don't know what I would have said to my mother if she'd said that to me. <laughs> uh, actually, that's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. So, <laughs> but yeah, so the, the yeah, Maori principles are basically that respecting the whole the whole chain from where to go. It's basically respecting the fact that, yeah, that everything that went into growing it, to producing it, to cooking it, and then the fact that it still has a flow-on effect after that. It's just respecting that whole chain. It's not just something that turns up uh, on the dinner table. Um, there is a, a huge amount of work and effort that goes into, into it and a whole lot of effects after it. Yeah, thanks for the question. I think it is a really good one. Um, I think for me, it's about it, it's about empowering young people to know that they can make a difference. I think that 
you know, as, as, as an adult, sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming to think about the challenges that we face as humanity. And I know, you know, we all know that kids um, are probably more affected by the weight of this than we are. And it seems to me that the way to help kids through that is to give them actual, tangible, practical things that they can do to make a difference. And food waste would feel to me like a really nice, easy one. You know, within your own home, let's look at what we can improve. You know, kids are amazing in terms of their ability to take things and either bring them from school home or take them from home to school. And... Um, you know, I know in our family, my kids are teenagers now, but my awareness of the plastic pollution problem started when they came home from school and told me about the massive plastic gyre thing. I was like, does that really exist? And how did I not know about that? And, and I think that un helping, helping young people understand they can actually have impact and make change takes away that sense of, of overwhelming disempowerment <laughs> and panic um, yeah, so that would be my thoughts, is kind of empowering them to, to take action and make change and feel positive about about it. Oh. <laughs> I think it is great. Respect is the obvious one, but also just um, we forget sometimes because we get so caught up in it about what food does in terms of connections and family and whanau and the different occasions you have it. And it's just if respect comes with that and the ability to create moments and we... And as food manufacturers, we're sometimes dead guilty of this. We forget what food does, and it's the wider how it brings people together and the conversations that will and should come with it, including where did it come from, how did it get here, did that cow have to die to give me a steak, yes, and all of those things. And it's, it's, that's the respect for me, it's, but that's the connection to food and to people. I was also going to say connection to food, and I think it's very interesting that almost everyone has said that in one way or another, because I've been thinking about what, what a really good consumer behaviour campaign look like, and I, and I truly think this problem comes out of our lack of connection to food. Um, the busyness, the, the disconnection, the being able to get strawberries or every, every day of the year sometimes. When you live in Australia, you can get them more often than here, which is not a good thing. So... It's that connection piece. And I think if you have young kids, I've got a two-year-old and he has no idea that food would ever end in the bin because when we finish a banana, it goes in the compost. And I think language is really important, um, habit stacking. So, you know, when you do one thing, do another. So when um, it just getting th things to be normalised would be the way that I would... Um, try and influence younger children's behaviour. It's not even a question. It's just we do this when, when this happens. And then I fundamentally believe food waste curriculum should be in all schools, but I don't think we can decouple it from the amazing curriculums that are out there with growing and, um, and, and healthy eating and all of those things. I think our communication needs to be all wrapped up together. I don't think... I should go into a school and just talk about food waste and someone else has just been talking about growing. I think they they all need to be looped in together because it is one cycle. I completely agree with everybody. Um, I believe that we should be telling our children about the value and the joy that food brings. 
that it is a cultural and a social uh, connector. It breaks down barriers. When you eat at a table with people that you don't know, you automatically start talking to them. You can't see whether they've got any shoes on at all or $500 shoes on. So it's about, for me, it's about understanding the value that food can bring to your life and to the life of other people too. Thank you very much. So we have time for one more question before we wrap things up. Anyone else? Uh, thank you all. Uh, while I was listening to all the conversations, it seemed like the problem is huge, so we need big strategy initiatives. But then when we are looking for solutions, all solutions need not be groundbreaking, I presume. There will be room for everything. So um, if you are looking at, let's say, on-the-ground tactics, it still comes down to collection of data. So um, is there ways we can involve uh, social uh, or communities in it? And maybe uh, for many of these solutions, scaling is a problem. Uh, you are talking about upcycling, but that's very much so. And maybe there are other solutions wherein maybe you are looking at testing sensors which can indicate a a product has gone bad. It may be color uh, indicators, etc., which say that there has been temperature abuse. All these are small, small uh, measures. But in order to get data, we need funding, and then the funding is, uh, has been uh, told as a big hurdle. So can we involve uh, society, let's say crowdfunding models, for small solutions or small projects? Is that a possibility? Or if it is a possibility, how should it be managed? Is there a platform we can create and maybe get the involvement as well as contribution? Not everybody has time, but I'm sure some of them would like to contribute in other ways, and maybe this is possible in some measure. Any comments are welcome. I think using people power is a great idea and the challenge is always how to do that in a way that creates data that's good enough. And um, the analogy I'd use is from our plastics project. There's a, a great individual, Camden Howard, who came up with um, a program called Litter Intelligence as part of Sustainable Coastlines. So what he did was spend a lot of time with volunteers cleaning up beaches, which is a good thing to do but also fairly soul-destroying because they keep filling up with plastic again. And he worked out that to get policy levers pulled, you needed to work with Statistics New Zealand, the Ministry for the Environment, the Department of Conservation. And he came up with a really simple kit set, essentially, that you can give to people cleaning up beaches so they can catalogue what they find. And I don't know how that applies in the food waste space, but it's something I'd really like to explore with them to see if there's an analogy. So now that data gets collected all the time, it's being rolled out internationally, and it's being used to affect policy change. So if you are trying to persuade people to get rid of straws, say, in drinks, in bars, and you collect all the straws, and you say, actually, this is the most common item we're finding on this beach, and you take them to the restaurant and say, you're the problem, 
all of a sudden, it's not a hard sell to get them to change. But without that data, you can't persuade people to change because they're like, well, how do I know it's my straw? Um, so I think there's some really good role models and that's a really positive note to end on in that we can try and think of ways to learn from programs like that to, to really get the willingness of people to help to change policy. Thank you. Cool, so that wraps up our session for today. So I think some key takeaways um, there is that we need to be making food waste visible. We need to be raising the awareness um, and educating people around the value and the respect of, um, and the respect for food. Um, so just one final question anyone can answer quickly. How can we continue this conversation around food waste? What is something that you can leave the audience with that they can take away and tell someone, um, and in turn, that person can share with another person, and we can create this ripple effect around awareness and ultimately action around addressing food waste. I'd get everyone to seriously get a, hopefully not too big, but a bin and capture all your food waste for a week. Just everything that you'd scrape into the bin or you'd put into something else, do that, you'll be surprised, and then you'll start telling your mates how much they're doing as well. That's how I'd do it. Yep, I would agree with that. Uh, I think it's about just talking about it and being aware about it, of it um, in every, every facet of your life and seeing if there's a solution that you can simply take. If everybody took one or two solutions for themselves, it would have a big impact. Thank you. Cool, so that brings us um, to the end of our discussion on uh, food waste. So just a massive thank you to the audience and all your really, really great um, thought-provoking questions. Um, we couldn't have had the session without your engagement. And again, um, thank you, very special thank you to our panellists for um, sharing everything about food waste. Thank you.